Hello, and welcome to the Aaron Evans podcast. This podcast is devoted to people who want to love, listen, and live a little better. I'll be sharing my musings as a life coach, a mother, a yogi, an entrepreneur, and I'll be interviewing some of the most inspiring people that I know that are leaving the world a little better than how they found it. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast. If you want to stay in touch, you can follow me on Instagram at Aaron underscore Evans. Buckle up and thank you for tuning in. Pain happens. Pain is what happens to us and how we respond to what happens to us. The suffering is the perpetuation of the pain. One example of suffering would be how we loop, we ruminate, we ruminate on something. That's suffering. We're creating suffering because we do actually have control over that loop. But we don't have control over what has caused us the pain. Nikki Fortin has been in my life for the past probably 10 years and I initially met her in a Mysore style yoga room. And I had never seen anyone vinyasa back from Marichi A. I apologize if you don't know yoga, but it's a seated pose, one knee is bent. And I watched her pick her body up and float into one-legged crow in vinyasa back. I was mesmerized and I was like, I need to know this woman. I trust this woman. And then she's been uh, a real part of my personal arsenal, my self-care arsenal as my therapist and a dear friend. My favorite thing about Nikki is her laugh. So often it will be in a therapy session and I want to make her laugh just because I love the way it sounds. Nikki is a certified psychologist. She teaches yoga nidra as well as yoga. Thank you so much for being here, Nikki. I'm so honored. So tell me a little bit about your background. I grew up in Ottawa. And uh, actually, I say my in my other life, I was uh, like a cello player. So I studied cello from a pretty young age and went to the conservatory in Quebec and actually went as far as doing um, first year at Ottawa U in music performance. And then I realized that I didn't want to spend six to eight hours a day in a room by myself practicing, which is sort of what you need to do in order to um, make any kind of living as a music, as a classical musician. And so then I switched directions to music therapy for my undergrad, which then took me to Vancouver and completed that uh, in and amongst a bunch of travel in Asia. So sort of simultaneously with the music trajectory, I was started yoga when I was quite young, about, I think I was 13 or 14, and I am an only child, and my parents had split up, so I was my mom's partner in crime, so I always got to do whatever she wanted to do, <laughs> whether I liked it or not, and she took me to a yoga class, and I loved it, and so that was going on at the same time, and the music therapy sort of taught me that I really, really wanted to help people. I always knew that. I always knew that. I dreamt of being like a nurse in Africa, but I knew I didn't have that kind of brain (laughs) to go into nursing. So went into the music therapy stream. And in my practicum there, finishing up, I was working 
downtown east side actually with some really interesting folks and um felt that i needed more training and more knowledge to understand uh mental health better to understand my clientele better and to be able to help people more effectively at least for me and so then i went on and did my master's in counseling psychology and here we are and that took me a really long time to register um because I was just slow about it but I was practicing as a therapist um with Alberta Health Services this whole time so that was gave me so much just um so much exposure to so many different types of people so I'm really grateful for that experience and I worked there for 13 years and started my own private practice about four years ago and so recently left Alberta Health Services and I'm just in private practice now. I did not know that about you that is so cool (laughs) and I could see you with the cello. (laughs) Although very different what is the common thread of human suffering? Mm. I love this question. I I love thinking about this and contemplating this and also uh, holding space for figuring out what this is for people. And there's so many ways to, I think, answer that question. I believe that underneath it all, so this is informed by hearing you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people's stories. And I say stories not in a dismissive way, but just in a way it's just using this word to describe what happens as an exchange in my therapy session. Uh, they're listening to all of these stories from all of these different people. There is a commonality that occurs in our adulthood where there's these developmental stages we hit as we grow from birth to death and around the age of 12 what I've noticed is between 8 and 12 there's a a a belief of unworthiness that gets it gets a bit locked it gets locked in And it can be conscious up until that point, and then it is no longer conscious. It's locked into our subconscious. And the belief of unworthiness is some variation of, I'm not good enough. And we all have our unique experience of what that is and our unique languaging around that. Uh, But we all share this, as adults, we all share this same belief of not good enough. And is that what you would say is a core belief? Yes. So I would call that a core belief. We could, you could also call, call it your core wound. And I also believe that it is tied into our choice of being incarnated. And when we choose to be incarnated, there's like... There's a contract that is, let's say, signed where we reincarnate in order to remember. And so it's the forgetting of the worthiness that creates 
a lot of life's suffering, but the suffering is actually the direction. Is this making sense? Yeah, I've heard the statement that your pain directs your path. Yes, yes. So it is very counterintuitive and it's very, uh, it's, it's, um, it feels wrong, but it is actually the right way. It is, so it is towards, we're walking towards that which is the pain, walking towards the suffering. Although I want to just, differentiate between pain and suffering and that's for the way I understand suffering is that suffering is something we perpetuate it is actually suffering we actually have um we have control over pain happens pain is what happens to us and how we respond to what happens to us the suffering is the perpetuation of the pain one example of suffering would be how we loop. We ruminate. We ruminate on something. That's suffering. We're creating suffering because we do actually have control over that loop. But we don't have control over what has caused us the pain or, or the experience of that pain. Yeah. How does one take control of that loop? Mm-hmm. If I'm always ruminating, what can I do to get off that wheel? Mm-hmm. Well, a big part, like it's, I call it like 80% of the, the fix, let's say, or the, 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 the cure for that is awareness. So we really need to be aware of the fact that we're looping or aware of the fact that we're ruminating. Most of us are very unaware of the thoughts we're having. They are unconscious, but they are still occurring, which is why meditation can feel really challenging for a really long time, if not forever, because we're all of a sudden becoming aware of what's actually going on in our minds. It's creating awareness, though. And with that awareness, which is what I believe is actually the whole point of meditation, is becoming aware of that which I am unaware of. How can I shine light on that which is in the dark? Mm -hmm. The subconscious becoming the conscious. Mm -hmm. And the more conscious we become, the more like literally conscious we become, the more awake we are, awake to that. That's beautiful and able to meet the present moment instead of being stuck Mm -hmm. in an old story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stuck in an old story, stuck in this... uh, meaning-making machine, which actually isn't creating meaning. Um, we're looping, we're looping around in the same, they, I think they've done, they've done studies where it's 95 to 99% of the thoughts we have are the same ones we had the day before, the day before that, the day before that. Not so that gets old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about the brain. I know you are uh, so fascinated by the human brain. What I'm really fascinated with and like to remind myself of and my clients of is how the brain does not differentiate between internal and external. So what that means is if I have a looping thought of, uh, let's say around the theme of, um, I, I, f- I feel socially rejected. Let's say I went to a barbecue and somebody said something and then I noticed a look and then I put my lens of perception on that which is I feel insecure in social situations now I'm interpreting that look uh, in the way that I might then decide that that person doesn't like me 
So it's reinforcing a belief. It's all assumptions. I don't actually know what's going on, but I'm assuming all this. Then this loop, this loop will start of this loop of sort of self-deprecation and I'm not good enough, I'm not liked, I'm rejected, whatever that might be. And I have thoughts that reinforce that loop. The thoughts that are occurring in my mind will then send signals to my amygdala, the mid part of my brain, which is my fight or flight, which protects me. It's there to keep me alive. But the, the brain doesn't know that I'm simply having thoughts of rejection rather than actually I was, I was banished from the tribe, right? But it feels the same. And being banished from the tribe is life or death. So that's why we can have really big feelings and reactions to a perceived rejection. And that's why it feels overwhelming and all-encompassing. It's because our bodies are responding in the way that they're meant to respond to keep us alive. So the amygdala sends a signal down the nervous system cortisol shoots through my body, now my heart's racing, I'm going to freeze, fight or flight. Uh, and then the body's response is reactivating the thought response. It's a whole system loop. And that's why you can't just think your way out of how you feel. Because your whole body, your whole system is involved. And in order to heal or shift or change any deeply held belief we need to we need to we need to get the entire system on board body brain heart all of it otherwise it's it'll make you feel better for a minute <laughs> but then the thoughts will come back and they say you don't see things as they are you see things as you think they are exactly exactly I mean, if we even just think about how our eyes work, it blows my mind. Our, um, our eyes don't even see things the right way up. And yet we switch it. We change it. We fill in so many blanks. The brain is constantly filling in blanks. Mm. And therefore, if we're unaware of how our tendencies and our patterns fill in the blanks, we are living very unconsciously. We are living as though we, we feel very powerless. We feel very mm, like thrown about, you know, by the waves and the wind. And we feel as though we have no sense of agency, mm-hmm. which is how a lot of people feel. It's normal. And you mentioned the word conscious. Can you explain what you mean by that? Again, there may be two ways of explaining that one like psychologically and one spiritually. And so the psychological explanation of being conscious is simply, I am aware. I'm what I am aware of. I am awake to that. I'm aware of that. I am, it is in my conscious mind, which holds, you know, maybe 5% of all the information I take in. I take the conscious mind takes in 5% of all the information I see. My subconscious, my unconscious mind takes in 95% of the rest. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the more conscious we are, meaning the more aware we are, the more aware we are to what we are receiving in terms of information and then how I am perceiving the information. So I'm receiving information, but I'm also perceiving the information. Mm-hmm. 
you almost can't trust yourself. Basically, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. If you're always looking for threat. Yoga and meditation by their very principle creates awareness. It's all about that. Uh, my experience of yoga and meditation has been that it is forcing you to see, to feel, and to hear those parts of you that have been quiet or dormant or you haven't felt, seen, or heard. So the sitting with self, right? The being with self. And if we take the asana practice, it took me a really long time to figure this one out. But for me, the asana practice was not not about the posture. It was about how I was reacting to the posture or reacting to the posture that was coming or the one that I just left, right? Or how I was reacting to other people in the room. And the meditation is is a is a bit more of a direct route um, in that it it, cre- it can create a lot of discomfort really quickly. And so it's not about creating the discomfort, but it's about how am I meeting? How am I meeting discomfort? How am I meeting boredom? How am I meeting my thoughts? How am I meeting my hip when it hurts? Yeah. I've heard it explained like meditation. We were, we're sitting normally on under a waterfall of thought. Mm. You might've been the one that told me this. And through a meditation practice, it's like I can take a step back and almost choose my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it gives me like a three second reaction time where I used to just react. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's through like scientific neuroscientifically is the strengthening of the prefrontal cortex. So the front part of the brain that doesn't get developed until we're early to mid 20s is actually thicker in people who have done many, many years of meditation. And the the benefit to having a thicker prefrontal cortex is that it does allow for this sense of pause between my maybe instinctual response and what what am I gonna what am I choosing to do next? Mm-hmm. It allows for this sense the space of choice. It creates the space of choice. And I love that idea because during this time of COVID and all the other things happening in the world, it's about adaptability. And the and, and yoga is like you keep your yoga up and you will be kept up. Mm-hmm. And we are safe. It's just the times are unsafe and it feels mm-hmm. unsafe in the world. Mm-hmm. But with a strong prefrontal cortex, a strong steadiness in the turbulent world as you mentioned the winds pull Mm -hmm. us the water pulls us Mm -hmm. we're more anchored in the fact that we're just going with the flow Mm -hmm. yes and going with the flow in in my understanding is that I will feel anxiety I will feel unmoored I will feel fear I will feel joy I will feel love I will feel disconnect that is normal and I think that that like ultimately is it's for me again as as a as a strong belief in how I practice as a therapist is is not about not feeling these uncomfortable emotions it's about welcoming 
and allowing. And what I notice during this time of COVID is really interesting in that there's these really strong responses to fear. And what I see, not to be honest, not so much in my clients, but more in the world at large where maybe people are less contemplative in that there's a lot of, um, there seems to be this, the fear response is driving a sense of right, like right or wrong, us or them, uh, yeah, division. Feels very big right now. Where, and I, I see that as, a, it's a response to the uncertainty and it's the only way people know how to feel safe is to putting themselves into a camp. I'm over here or you're over there. And it make they're creating meaning out of something that is really hard to make meaning of because we're not out of it yet. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually know where this is going or why this is here. And for those who feel uncomfortable with the uncertainty, which is most of us, but maybe have never even had to face a lot of uncertainty, that that's where I see some struggle. That's mm-hmm. where I see more struggle. Where you speak of the adaptability um, this is where our pain <laughs> comes in handy. You know, I've had a lot of clients say like, welcome to my party, COVID. Like, this is just what I've been living for a long time. And they're well-equipped and well-resourced to manage uncertainty mm-hmm. and chaos because they have faced that. So pain is a gift and it is the way. Mm-hmm. You often say to me to feel it. To, to not get caught up in the story of it. Can you speak to that for a moment, that how an emotion lasts for a certain duration until a thought loop catches mm-hmm. onto it? Mm-hmm. But what tends to happen is, I often draw this diagram where it's a cylinder, and at the bottom of the cylinder, the bottom 30% is the clean feeling, it's the pain, it's the discomfort, it's whatever is coming up for you. It's real, it's there, it's happening. But we add this whole other 70% on top, which is, and it's quite often, I feel bad about feeling bad. So let's say I've just been hurt. Someone's hurt me. Someone's hurt my feelings. I feel hurt. Now I feel ashamed for feeling hurt, right? So we, we often will just layer our response to our, our pain on top of it which then creates this thought loop, which then just adds a whole lot more discomfort that we then have to kind of navigate through. Mm-hmm. And we're often very unaware of that. That's the, that's, again, that's the part that is, uh, becomes clear the more someone might be self-reflective and self, you know, self-study, all of that, where... Mm-hmm you are more aware of the, this pattern. Ah, this is how I, te- like, if I'm feeling anxious, I well, anxiety is a big one, right? Where mm-hmm. we all, all have this feeling of anxiety. It's very physically, it's very uncomfortable. It feels horrible. And as soon as I have this feeling of anxiety, what tends to happen is now I feel anxious about feeling anxious. Oh no, anxiety is here. Why is it here? Oh no, this is bad. Something bad's happening. <laughs> now, I'm, now my heart's going to really raise. Oh, I feel really yucky now. Oh. And now I've just added. Right? And so the, 
meditation, mindfulness, yoga practices do help us to meet discomfort in a different way. And with your clients, do you do you see a sparkle of you in most of your clients? Can is it relatable? Or do you completely step back as a witness? Mm, that's a great question. I feel so humbled to be in this profession and that it allows me every day when I sit with a client to experience our common humanity. So in that, I feel deeply connected and um, one with them in that space, in that space of like honest, vulnerable, raw humanity. And, and I also work very hard to not project my lens onto that individual. Now, is that even possible? I don't know. I just work really hard to not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I'm in your presence, I feel like we are one. And they said that Ram Das, he has a movie out that's called Unbecoming. And he says the whole journey of being spiritual is to unbecome and unbecome and less of you and less of you and less of you. And when I'm in the presence of you, it's like you're gone. Hmm. Yeah, it's truly like we're one and you're there for me to say what I need to say. But that's exactly what I feel. And it's probably why I feel so safe. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. What is your favorite book? I don't know. I have lots of books I really, really like. But I grabbed this one, um, this book off the shelf, called This is Happy, Mm -hmm. a memoir by Camilla Gibb. And she is a beautiful, beautiful writer. And there are a couple of quotes I thought maybe I could just read quickly. Okay. Um, Being able to put your experiences into a narrative gives meaning to the life you have lived. It can allow you to make sense of the things that have seemed the most senseless and cruel by providing some context. Even if that context is nothing more than, it didn't kill me. I am alive to tell this tale. I am here where I once was there. There is a story, possibly a universal one, of the passage between there and here. And the last, this other quote from the same book, where she's actually speaking about, she found this therapist who was really helpful to her. Um, And she, she says, one witness, though one reliable and loving witness with the capacity to hold, can change what you are convinced will be the inevitable outcome. So I I love this book because she's so... She describes pain so well, but it is the most beautiful and uplifting book. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. And do you believe that to be true, that that within the pain is sometimes such a great gift for people? Always. Mm. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do this work if I didn't. Mm. And I hold that as, like, as the highest, believing that as the highest good. It's not that I wish pain on anyone, but I do believe that pain is inevitable. 
and how, if in any way I can help navigate people through that pain so that it, it becomes an awakening for them so that the pain can be the direction to the light. That's all I could ever hope for. And what is your favorite song? Stars by Coldplay. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. I, you're, You have a big spot in my heart, and you've helped me through some really rough times. So thank you so much for taking the time. Erin, you're a bright light. Keep doing what you're doing. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, also, where can we find you? You can find me online at my website, www.nicolafortin.com. And I'm also on a, a few web search for psychologist in Canmore. But yeah, just Google my name and you'll find my website. I do have a free Yoga Nidra recording attached to the website if that interests people as well. And I offer some workshops here and there right now. Things are on pause, but I have done workshops just around the themes that we are talking about today in places like Western Canada. Yeah, beautiful. I can attest to Nikki's work. It's unbelievable. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Erin. Thank you. What a woman. What a heart. If you enjoyed that conversation, subscribe and rate this podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time and I hope you have a wonderful day.